Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club, and it's still Shocktober! Ow! <laughs> 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 Ooh. I was working in the lab. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> Monster mess. And today we're going to be talking about a very broad subject: slashers. But more specifically, Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> Do you know it's supposed to be saying "ma ma ma" in that? Really? I yeah. thought it was supposed to be like "kill kill." Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it actually varies from movie to movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to keep, you know, the fans on their toes. Yeah. So when we talked about we should do kind of a film series, we kind of bandied a bunch about, which was Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Halloween, Leprechaun. <laughs> what uh, are some other series? Oh, God. Uh, Ernest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the most horrifying er, life well, of Ernest all. Ernest was scared stupid in that one entry. <laughs> so, does that mean that he was smart and then he was scared into stupidness? Well, uh, oh, God. I used to have a whole theory for that, but I've totally forgotten. <laughs> is there like a term paper somewhere? Think, well, wait. Is there an expression that that title is playing off like a scared stiff? Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's like it's scared stiff, but Ernest is stupid, as okay. we all know. So he's not scared stiff; he's scared stupid. Yeah, but he's already stupid. So you're not going to another state of being. If you ever pick up the uh, VHS box of Ernest Scared Stupid, the critic blurb on the front cover says "zany," <laughs> which is great because I mean, you don't have to like the movie to call it zany. So Friday the Thirteenth, we decided to pick this one because when you think about slashers. That is, like, the number one. Even before Michael Myers. Right. Even though uh, the ha- Halloween, of course, came first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Psycho before that. But I think uh, Friday the 13th is the series that really kind of, by ripping off Halloween, kind of sent a te- set a template for all of the slasher movies that would come in the 80s. Also dumbed it down and brought up all the more exploited developments. And also, like, just on a personal level, I kind of like the Friday the 13th <laughs> movies, you know? There's something about... Um, kind of their base, like artlessness, and and you know, as a lapsed Catholic, um, <laughs> there's you know, I the ritualistic quality of them reminds me of the Stations of the Cross. <laughs> like the first four, I can't even look at you with a straight face when you say <laughs> the that. The first four Friday the Thirteenth movies. In this I chapter, God, I will be summarizing that <laughs> the, the first four of these movies are the same movie. Basically. No, no, no. All right, first one. Jason's not the killer. His no, mother is. No, listen. Second, Baghead. Third, 3D. Fourth, final chapter. I know. They all have subtle differences, but let's <laughs> Just like it. the Stations of the Cross, depending on what. But, uh, I, but I, I generally, I like the series, especially after part four, because after part four is when it starts to get really nutty. Mm. Uh, I like long running series when after the popularity starts to, starts to wane a little bit, they keep throwing in more and more gimmicks to keep people interested. They're like, what can we do to get someone in the theater again? So all of the later Friday movies have some absurd gimmick. Well, I mean, the fifth one doesn't really. And I, th- I would well, it argue- kind of does because it's a new, it's a new beginning and it has, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, let's spoil, Friday, spoil it? Friday the 13th part five. <laughs> that Jason is not the killer. You've had 30 years to watch it. <laughs> but I, I mean, part five is interesting to talk about because when you talk about that ritualistic nature, part five was directed by a straight up porn director. So he actually treated the kills like moments of climax, very specifically. Well, if you want to write your university essay on that, uh, about the link between sex and death in uh, Friday the 13th films and the sort of penetrative... <laughs> Uh, symbolism. Men, of, women, and chainsaws, if you will. You would not be the first person to write such an essay. <laughs> so we got to put something on the table now is that I love slasher movies. Love horror films. 
My favorite. Will? Uh, you know, I like horror movies. Slasher movies, eh, you know, uh, I can take or leave them. I've seen all the Friday movies. I've seen all the Nightmare movies. After that, my knowledge of them is a little bit sketchy. I, I think the problem with slasher movies for me is, sure, I love watching people get killed in movies. It's all that stuff in between. <laughs> it so is. So fucking boring. Well, I mean, I recently kind of softened a little bit more to slasher films. I um, read a quote that one of the writers for Bleeding Skull, which is a like trash kind of VHS-based movie blog, said that, to defend a slasher called Final Exam, which is literally just an hour of college students being college students until suddenly a dude in, like, jeans shows up, starts murdering them with no motivation. And his argument to defend it was, imagine just hanging out with people for an hour. They're just people, they have lives, and then suddenly they all start getting murdered for no reason. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a very interesting way to approach these films because... What are slashers, right? Like, what is the attraction of a slasher movie? And it could only be seeing something that is technically life being disturbed by death. And a life that is not unlike your own exactly. as a horny teenager going to see a slasher movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the argument that the producers had, right? And also somebody making a similar argument from a different point of view. One Mr. Roger Ebert, who famously disliked slasher movies. We just watched his Siskel and Ebert review of... Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, where I think he went a little bit overboard in his condemnation, but he made the point that uh, the movies are nihilistic because it basically shows you a world where you're a teenager. It doesn't matter what your hopes and dreams are. It doesn't matter if you got a new boyfriend. It doesn't matter if you've got a new job, some cool thing in your life, you're going to get killed. But I don't think... I don't think he's right exactly. No, because... There's there's a kernel of truth to it. Because what people want to see when they go see a slasher film is, like I said, that kind of destruction of the reality they know, right? Like, when I see something violent, my reaction is usually to kind of laugh and be like, whoa! Because this kind of, you know, image that they've been giving is shattered. And like, oh, I see this every day, but now this is happening. And it's like, whoa, I don't expect that! I also think, you know, horror movies uh, work on some primal level. I think there's something uh, sort of therapeutic about them. So I think simply condemning uh, horror movies that are popular isn't all that productive because if they're popular, they're popular for a reason because they're such like primal movie going experiences. They're tapping into something deep in our psychology. It's more interesting to figure out why particular horror movies are resonating at that particular point in time. Because like whatever the popular horror movies are have always been a reflection to some extent of like, you know, where society's head is at. Yeah, like, you know... know, That's why found footage horror movies were so popular a few years ago, or torture movies were before that. Because of the war and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, whatever. That the idea that tons of academics have put forward, that, like, it's tapping, like you said, into a universal thought that everybody is having. And I think that that's not necessarily unhealthy. But it's a pressure valve, right? Yeah. That as human beings, it's kind of like you cannot have a positive outlook on everything. Like, you want to see some misery to kind of outweigh things in your life. And you don't want to watch, like, Mm -hmm. people getting their heads cut off for real. Mm -hmm. You want to see it be done fakely. And I I think it's not necessarily unhealthy to have some natural curiosity about what that sort of thing looks like. I mean, I don't really like the Saw movies, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the appeal of those movies was, here's what it looks like if your bones are broke. And like, I don't think it's so shameful to be curious what that looks like. I like to argue that I was not a big fan of those types of movies when they came out, like the torture genre, because what you're doing is 
you're showing an audience pain. You're like mm-hmm. reveling in people's pain. Mm-hmm. While even the Friday the 13th movies very rarely go towards that. What they're giving the audience is shock. Yeah. Kind of like, look at this. But if you see someone be like, oh, and they're like moaning and screaming, that's not something that appeals to me as a viewer. Yeah, n- me neither. So you watch Friday the 13th Part 1. Yes. I mean, there's not much to say about that. Well, alone, what, right? what movies did we both watch this week? Because I think we watched different movies. So I watched Part 4, and I watched Part 6, Jason Lives, and I also watched Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, great film. I watched Part 1. Uh, I watched part six again, and I watched part six on the miracle of VHS. <laughs> the way it was meant to be seen. <laughs> yeah, I'm a purist on things like that. I watched Sleepaway Camp on your recommendation. Mm-hmm. And then the two of us both tonight watched, uh, what movie did we watch? April Fool's Day. Ugh, Terrible. Not good. It. We're not going to talk about that Garbage. One. Yeah. Uh, but the thing about April Fool's Day is that I'm going to ruin a movie that we don't like. The twist is that it's all fake. Yeah. Right. Would you have liked the movie more if they had all died? Yes. I, that's it's weird. Not, I was thinking about that too because my sister when I was a kid told me that was a twist of the movie. And because of that, I never watched it. Because I'm like, I don't want to watch the movie where it's all fake and no one dies. Yeah. Even though it is a movie and this is all fake anyway. I don't know how to attribute that. But yeah. no, I mean, it's a movie, but you're supposed to like buy into what's happening in the diegesis. And part of the appeal of for, of a slasher movie is the fact that like, there are stakes, right? Yeah. Like, people are going to die and some people are going to live. But you, in the moment, <laughs> believe that is true. Yeah. So when they pull the rug under you... And, I mean, the movie's not that good anyway. It's pretty boring. Yeah. But then at the end, it kind of feels like, oh, thanks for wasting my time. <laughs> That's not, so none weird. Of it, none of it meant everything. I just hung out with these shit characters for 90 minutes for no reason. The movie kind of felt like the big chill, honestly. <laughs> it did. Just a bunch of douchebags hanging around out for a weekend. So watching Friday the 13th Part 1 and all the other ones that you saw... Did you feel that you liked the characters in any way, or are they just kind of interchangeable? Uh, I don't dislike them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think most of them are pretty interchangeable. Actually, in Sleepaway Camp um, is is the one where I think I liked the characters the most. Because mm. I watched a movie called Slaughter High, which is just a trashy Dick Randall produced, the guy who made Pieces, slasher film. I love Dick film. Randall. Pieces, that's my favorite slasher film. <laughs> Where the tagline is, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. And the other tagline is, it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> and the thing about Slaughter High was that everybody in the movie is so reprehensible that you're like, I cannot wait to see these people die. Mm. And at the end, they all get killed, every single one of them. And that's what you want. And that's what a lot of producers thought slasher movies had to be. And sometimes, I mean, Friday the 13th doesn't really follow that logic too much. But mm. it's still there in some form. I, I will say, like, in defense, maybe a little bit of Ebert's point of view, there's something a bit mean-spirited about the Friday the 13th movies. I mean, I'm hardly the first to point this out, but in most of the films, um, it's the sexually active teenagers who get killed. And, uh, you know, f- as everyone has said, there's like the final girl, who's mm. sort of a, a chaste, um, relatively unfeminine woman uh, who... <laughs> You know, through her, through being chased by Jason, almost like becomes androgynous in a way. Uh, And there's something kind of, you know, I guess you could say it's sort of sick and mean spirited saying if you have sex, you're going to be killed. I mean, I don't know how much I attribute to that. I mean, that's been thrown around so much that it's become kind of text. When I think that when they were making the Friday the 13th films and director like Sean Cunningham and Steve Miner had no kind of grasp of that you don't you, but even by like movie number two or three I, uh, I don't know i don't think joseph zito who made four was kind of aware of those rules either i think that 
when they have sex or they do drugs or stuff like that, what they're doing is they're bringing their characters to a kind of climax, giving them something to do, mm-hmm. and then they can be killed, right? Well, one thing I noticed in the Friday the 13th remake from a few years ago, the one that Michael Bay produced, was that... Weirdly enough, the first couple of characters who died were the ones who were virgins. And that was a very conscious effort by them, I believe. Yeah, and there were a couple of sex scenes in the movie, and when the sex scenes happened, I thought, oh, these two are dead. But they didn't die immediately after. Like, it took a little while after. Um, Which, I guess, goes to show that kids are now, like, more concerned about, like... They they want to have sex and not having sex is is shameful to teenagers. So I don't know. Maybe it shows how like the world has changed. Yeah, that, like it's having sex is not that taboo anymore. The taboo is not having sex. Yeah, and I mean I I also like kind of don't like that. There's something kind of I don't know mean spirited and. But are you reading a lot into it as well? Like, well, no, like I a mean, twelve year old's not going to see that. Well, but I think it's like adults who made that that Friday Thirteenth remake who are like very deliberately poking at something that's very sensitive for a lot of teenagers and making teenagers feel bad about it. What it's saying is, if you're not a sexually active teenager, that's shameful. And I think that's kind of a weird thing for adults to be putting in, to be manipulating kids like that. Well, I don't know. I suddenly see the ghost of Roger Ebert appear before me. <laughs> Um, but we brought up uh, a little bit earlier Men, Women, and Chainsaw, which is like the text when it comes to looking at slasher films with a feminist lens. I believe that the author that created the final girl kind of the concept. label. Yeah. yeah, Carol Clover. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the really few kind of film studies academic books that's kind of penetrated the popular consciousness. Well, I, she said something really interesting in that book is that people like Roger Ebert uh, viewed slasher films as a sadistic kind of idea mm-hmm. that you want to see people people suffer but she took the final girl archetype and the fact that the final girl at the end usually triumphs actually makes the movies more of a masochist kind of ideal that as a viewer you are punishing yourself with this to see at the end them come out maybe uh i mean in that book she points to i spit on your grave where you know people like roger ebert condemned it as thinking that we're supposed to like have the point of view of the rapists Mm -hmm. and supposed to enjoy the rape scenes but really what she thought was it's supposed to be grueling. We're supposed to sympathize with the rape victim. And then in the Friday the 13th movies, I honestly think it's more ambiguous. Yeah. I, I think that we, I think there's a transference of identification. I think we're supposed to enjoy watching all the characters get killed and then uh, want to see the final girl yeah. triumph. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's effective in that sense. I always think, I think the Friday the 13th movies, like on some fundamental war- level work, I think the last 20 minutes, which are like a big chase, basically, mm-hmm. of all of them, like in all of the movies, I really actually find myself getting really caught up in the chase. It reminds me of nightmares I've had where I'm being chased. I actually pointed out um, online when I was doing research for this episode, which is like, has there are there any like great slasher films? Slasher films where I care about the characters there's suspense and the kills are grueling but like in a way that i haven't seen before and there's not that many well i don't know if halloween fits all those criteria but i don't think anyone would argue that it's not well halloween is a great slasher film that is without question and you know i'm not even sure if you'd call psycho a slasher film i i mean that's a bit of a stretch like but if you take something like friday the 13th part six jason lives which is without a doubt my favorite of the film series yeah that film can only exist with everything that's come before it so that's a that's a really fun movie it's the one where the friday series starts to embrace self-parody it opens with tommy jarvis who's the uh 
uh, in part four is the kid who kills Jason. And in part five is the kid who kills fake Jason, who you assume has gone crazy and put on yeah. the micro, uh, the who has put on the the mask. Yeah, but um, in in part six, he decides, listen, I got to see Jason's grave. I got to be sure that he's really dead. So he digs up Jason's grave and he sees Jason's rotting corpse and he like grabs this metal beam and starts stabbing the corpse. Die, Jason. I want to make sure you're dead. Well, lightning strikes the metal beam and uh oh, we got Frank and Jason on our hands. And that is just a logical progression to what the other movies have done where Jason has died in every single one of them and just come back. And now they're just like, fuck it. Like, it's ridiculous. Frank and Jason. And also there's this amazing pre credit scene where the camera closes in on Jason's eye. And then it's like the James Bond iris (laughs) opening where you see in Jason's eye, Jason, you know, walk in and then throw his knife at the camera like James Bond. Well, the film directed by Tom McLaughlin, who it was actually the second film he ever made, was a reaction, like I said, to everything that came before. So when he watched the Friday the 13th movies, he wanted kids to be at the camp, which Mm -hmm. they are. He wanted the elites to go straight to the police, which they do. Mm -hmm. He wanted characters that were likable and kind of reacted to the situation in a way that you actually would react when you start seeing people get murdered. But I think the thing about that's successful about Friday the 13th Part 6 is that while it's super goofy, like someone gets their face smashed in a tree, which then reveals a bloody smiley face. Yeah. It's a film that by the end, you're also like, I do not want these main characters to die. I, I think it just like works on the kind of fundamental level that all the other movies in the series work where... But like, there's just a level of craft that's yeah. not necessary in the other one. And ones. there's a sense of humor to it that, I mean, it, it skirts self-parody, but it doesn't, aside from that opening scene, it doesn't go too far. Like, it still works as a horror movie. The whole second half of the Friday series, as I said, they all have a ridiculous gimmick. In part seven... He fights Carrie. Yeah, he fights a telekinetic girl who's basically Carrie. In part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, where, despite the title, they spend most of the movie on the boat to Manhattan. Now, I had never watched Jason Takes Manhattan until we were going to do this podcast. And the reason for that was that people said it was terrible. So I love I'm like, it. Uh, I got better stuff to do with my time. But I finally watched it, and my God, did I like it. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. The director, I was reading some interviews with him, and he said that his main inspiration was Jason Lives, mm-hmm. but he wanted to kind of take it away from the obvious, like, winking to the camera and put it in the context of a regular Jason film, but do some crazy shit mm-hmm. that fans of the series hate Jason takes Manhattan. I mean, mostly because he never gets to Manhattan for an hour, but also because Jason is a unbeatable supernatural entity that can teleport anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the film makes tons of jokes to that respect. There's a scene where a guy sees Jason like across the boat and he climbs one of the sails Mm -hmm. and halfway up, Jason just pops up and throws him off. Yeah. Like, that's great. I love that kind of shit. I also think the boat is just like a really interesting space Mm -hmm. for a slasher movie. You know, you got the... You got the boiler rooms, yep. you got the cabins, you got the big ballroom, uh, lots of stuff going on. And then when they get to Manhattan, which is mostly Vancouver. But uh, I think the Manhattan part, people really shit on it. I think it's great because it's my favorite kind of depiction of a big city, which is like people get mugged the second they arrive. Yeah. There's barrels of toxic waste everywhere. <laughs> well, uh, according to this movie, the way they clean out the New York sewers is <laughs> at, at like... Midnight every night, they just dump like acid or toxic waste in the sewer and just like do a purge, and that's how they kill Jason at the end. Like, I don't think they actually do that in Manhattan, do they? It has a scene at the end where the leads get chased by Jason. 
And I love slasher films that end with like 20 minute sequences where a protagonist has to like figure out a way to get away from the killer as he's like bursting through doors. And in Manhattan, they get on the subway, they go through a diner and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And it's just great to see Jason in some of those locations. Jason on the subway. There's that uh, scene in Times Square, one of the few shots that actually is Manhattan where Jason walks through Times Square and, and some somebody yells at him and then Jason turns around and lifts up his mask uh, at them. <laughs> and kicks over their boombox. Yeah. I love Jason as a character, by the way. I was reminded all over again what a great character he is. You know, what What is he, in your eyes, like? Just the idea of somebody who's just kind of like an absolutely... Unkillable. It, unkillable, unstoppable force of nature. But there's something human there. Like when the camera closes in on his eyes, it's kind of a shocking reminder that, oh my God, there's there's like a man behind here. There's something that some of the movies kind of got away from that I kind of enjoyed in the original films, which is the Jason as a kind of puppeteer where mm-hmm. he will like set up bodies to scare someone yeah. when they like open a door or something like that. And the fact that he's wearing a mask too, so mm-hmm. he's expressionless aside from the eyes, uh, is very powerful, I think. Well, that's the, something they stole from Michael Myers. I and guess. the classic kind of alien conceit, right, from Ridley Scott's Alien, which is like, the scariest monster is one with no eyes right. because it has no expression, so you project whatever you want onto it. So I'm always a bit disappointed in the Friday movies when Jason like takes off his mask and you see like a mutant face underneath. Yeah, it's like I don't know. You'd rather just the like broken hockey mask, and you can just yeah. anything could be under. Yeah, there. and it's just mysterious. If I want to do anything, is I want to bring um, Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan to the seat it deserves at the slasher table, which is near the front. <laughs> this is our legacy. Yeah. Let's Remember the, the Ford Cinema guys. Club? They, you know, made us realize that Jason Takes Manhattan is a lot of fun. But I think one of the reasons that people don't like it is they consider it silly, which is something really weird and something a little bit troubling when it comes to, like, slasher films, right? Mm-hmm. Is when the fans are like, I don't like that one. It's too goofy. Yeah. And it's like, what are you coming to these movies for, right? Yeah. Like, if you take a movie like, have you seen High Tension? Uh, no, I actually haven't. That's like a brutal, like, French slasher film, which I can enjoy, but at the same time, you can still, like, take a slasher and make it silly. Especially something like Jason, which you got, like, four, five serious movies with him in it. Mm-hmm. Is that you just want to keep seeing that over and over again? Now, throughout the 80s, uh, the Friday the 13th movies were the redheaded stepchild of Paramount. That's probably a politically incorrect expression. I'm sorry to all, all redheaded, redheaded stepchildren. I, 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 I do not mean that as an insult to you. You're great. Uh, but... Uh, Basically, they were kind of like this money factory for Paramount, but Paramount also kind of gave the feeling that they were sort of ashamed of them. Mm. Uh, and of course, they had people like Roger Ebert on TV saying that Paramount should be ashamed of of this uh, material that's the decline of Western civilization. But, you know, inevitably, as things do, uh, the public's attention started to turn elsewhere. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies became popular. Uh, box office revenues declined so Paramount sold the rights to the series to New Line um, and after that New Line made three or four other Friday the 13th movies of all of which are pretty ludicrous Yeah. Um, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday um, why do they keep putting final in the title yeah. <laughs> like they know it's not done uh, this, this movie is just hilarious because the setup is so it opens with like a bunch of a bunch of bounty hunters basically exploding Jason. They finally capture him. They finally explode him into a million pieces. Great opening. He's dead. But it turns out a body is just a piece of meat to Jason. 
and his heart, which hypnotizes people to take a bite out of it. And then those people are possessed by Jason. Yeah. And it's like, you see this like disembodied, I guess it's a heart, but it looks like, it looks like a slug almost like this big slug that just hops from body to body. And according to that movie, that's the reason why Jason has been able to survive so many kills over the years is because he's not one single body. It's, it's this soul that's hopped from body to body this whole time, which is ridiculous. Why do I need any answers it's to this totally, question? Well, that it I didn't totally want to contradicts ask. everything we've seen before. <laughs> yeah. But the movie's also funny because it has this, this other bounty hunter figure. An Ahab, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Who we learn in part nine of the series has been hunting Jason Voorhees for the entire <laughs> chronology of the series, just trying to get him. And he realizes that, uh, Jason, because he's just this spirit going from body to body, can only be killed by another member of the Voorhees family. Classic Michael Myers logic. Yeah. So they find, what is it, like Jason's distant cousin or <laughs> yeah, something? Yeah, something like that, I'll remember. Who who finally kills him. Uh, After a WWE-style wrestling match between the lead and Jason. Yeah, and... The, and uh, that was it for the Friday the 13th series, and we never saw one yeah, again. Yeah, it was the final Friday. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, there's one frontier that Jason hasn't been to yet. Space. That's when you know a series has jumped the shark. <laughs> Leprechaun 4. Yeah. Hellraiser 4. A little movie called Moonraker. When the long-running series finally <laughs> goes to space you know jason x is the movie jason x uh was also really malign at the time it sat on a shelf for a long time mm-hmm. and you know the film that they was finally re- dumped into the theaters like a week before spider-man came out <laughs> the film as it was is just a really goofy lark about teens in space being killed by jason that is obviously shot in canada it has that feel of a canadian film yeah a, the ba- a bad feel <laughs> It was the director was apparently like some protege of David Cronenberg. He was a special effects guy named James Isaac, who um, sadly passed away a few years ago. And Jason X is supposed to be like his big theatrical feature. And David Cronenberg even makes a cameo in the film. Yeah, at the very beginning, which is great. Nice to see David Cronenberg back to his roots. <laughs> but as didn't, fa- by the way, didn't Adam McGoyan direct some episodes of the Friday the 13th TV series? He did, which Friday the 13th TV series, for people that don't know, has nothing to do with Jason. It just was owned by Paramount and the um, producer Frank, Frank Man, uh, Cuso Jr. And they just used the name to right. tell like an anthology And I'm series. assuming that Adam Egoyan's episodes were about the Armenian genocide. <laughs> or <laughs> like um, repressed sexual problems and yeah, stuff like so that. So I'm so sure. Yeah. I mean, David Cronenberg directed some episodes of Friday the 13th, the series as well. Yeah, or... I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. One of those, yeah. yeah. There were those things spun off into eternity, right? Because people yeah. just wanted more and more and more, which is some of the reasons why after Jason X, we got the movie that everybody wanted to see, Freddy versus Jason. Oh, but but just one more point about Jason X. Uh, it's another movie that has a lot of self parody in it. There's a scene. I mean, it's one big joke. Yeah. So there's a scene in space uh, when. Uh, these uh, sexy teenage scientists yeah. <laughs> have created a, a computer simulation of Camp Crystal Lake. And uh, Jason comes in and there are these two like sexy teens, like nude girls who are like, we love premarital sex. Yep. Um, and th- I remember uh, Jeff Pavier's review in the Toronto Star. Uh, he gave it one star, of course. And he said, if a turd winks, is it still a turd? <laughs> That's a good line. Though. Yeah. I mean, it brings the question of how important is violence in Friday the 13th movies, right? We haven't really talked about this. Friday the 13th was a famous whipping boy for the MPAA, is that they would go through it with like a chainsaw to make sure that all the violence would be or cut out. Or a machete, if you will. Sure. 
And um, watching these, like, without the violence, there's that classic conceit that when you remove blood or splatter from a sequence, it's actually more horrifying. Boo. Bruce Campbell said it. Bruce Campbell had a story of it's editing, only snobs who say that. editing a TV version of Evil Dead 2 with none of the violence. So it would just be like Bruce Campbell's scared face looking at something. That's what that's what they all say about like the Val Luton movies, right? Oh, they're so scary. They're because, not scary because they create the image in your mind. <laughs> Just show me fucking someone exploding, yeah, or, like that's falling out of someone. On. So after Jason X, Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, that's a movie I saw when I was a teenager, as you do. Um, I thought it was super fun at the time. Yeah, uh, haven't revisited it since. Haven't have not at all been tempted to be to revisit it. Um, and we were talking about Freddy versus Jason recently. I remembered absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> It's a movie that I remember being really disappointed with, mostly from the uh, Freddy side of things. Because the thing about Freddy is, and he also went into a land of uh, self-parody and... I'll get you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. (laughs) And that's from the classic uh, The Final Nightmare. (laughs) Right. Uh, Is that the problem people have had with Nightmare on Elm Street films is Freddy can literally do anything and just the dreams are lame and they're just in a boiler room. It feels like it's kind of the path that these Nightmare on Elm Street films have taken, like the remake, Freddy vs. Jason. I would like to see like a really good Nightmare on Elm Street movie or a really good Friday the 13th movie. One that, you know, wasn't simply an exploitation film. One that actually... <laughs> One that actually like just tried to didn't follow the same old template that tried to do something new or tried to get at the kind of what's primal and scary about like wouldn't you like to see like Lars von Trier's Nightmare on Elm Street? I would love to see Lars. Uh, von- I would be crazy. But but like you know you and I saw Shin Godzilla this week, yeah. which is kind of a, a really kind of new creative take on the Godzilla movies. Uh, one that isn't the same old play it safe template. I would love to see somebody do something like that with uh, you know a Jason or a Freddy movie. Well, the weird thing about Friday the Thirteenth is that. Like, it's a film that should make itself, right? Like, whoever owns the rights, they should literally be like, we'll just put a Friday the 13th movie out every year or every two years. Just give it to some new director who will either do something interesting with it. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't work, just make a fucking Friday the 13th movie next year. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. And instead, they've held on to the property being like, we need to make the perfect version. Like, for a while, they talked about they're going to make a found footage Friday the 13th movie. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I I guess... But that Friday the 13th remake from a few years ago, the one that Michael Bay produced, was just such a kind of like play it safe. Well, uh, it was kind retread. of a uh, hyperactive version of the template that you associate with the series, right? Mm-hmm. Like it didn't really do anything new. Mm-hmm. Like teens got killed by the bucket full. Jason could run. They're like, Jason can run now, which is <laughs> makes him not as scary as he is normally. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie The Rise of Leslie Vernon? No. It's a really funny mockumentary kind of um, horror film where the first uh, hour is a documentary crew following a serial killer who, it's not like a parody. He's going straight of how he achieves to be a serial killer. Like he sets up doors so people will look through and fall, blah, blah, blah. And there's a funny joke where he's like, you know how much cardio you have to do to make it look like you're just walking normally when you're really catching up with them? Mm. And The Rise of Leslie Vernon is a really interesting film too is that at the hour point, they drop the mockumentary format and it turns into just a straight slasher Hmm. shot like a normal uh, movie would be but anyway friday the 13th great series go watch them all why not yeah what else are you doing with your life (laughs) (laughs) and if you out there are filmmaker listening to this and you want to make a slasher film 
try to write likable characters, <laughs> make us care about what they're doing. So, and give us crazy kills if you want. You were saying earlier that uh, you thought that you heard somebody who had a theory that the characters in a slasher movie have to be hateable so you want to watch them die yes i'm not sure i agree no with that. i absolutely disagree with that who made that uh it was the director of slaughter high that dick randall film i was talking oh, about yeah. where the characters are so awful because there's a feeling that when you're seeing someone get murdered right they need that murder needs to be justified that's not true i don't know audiences don't feel that way mm-hmm. like if you make likable characters it works on two levels because you don't want to see these people die but you still revel in their death a little bit depending on how it happens right okay what's your favorite death from the friday the 13th movies because <laughs> uh, i because i got my choice it's from uh we're a very serious film podcast <laughs> yeah. all right top 10 deaths of friday the 13th <laughs> who had the best boobs yeah. <laughs> uh it's uh in part seven when uh jason picks up uh the the woman in the sleeping bag and bashes yeah. her against a tree well I have a and, s- and second place uh, kevin bacon's death in part one the gruesome death um yeah with the arrow going through his neck yeah um i think that one of my favorite conceptual deaths is the guy doing a handstand that gets cut in half in <laughs> i think i'm not gonna remember name a part because i don't remember and also the guy that gets a machete in the head and in a wheelchair and then rolls down some stairs and my favorite scene from a Nightmare on Elm Street film is uh, in one of the dreams when Freddy Krueger has a pizza that, and as you see, a bunch of little heads where the pepperoni should be. I think about that be. all the time and, when I eat a pizza. Yeah. It's such a gross image. Yeah, he's all the little heads as like pieces of pepperoni, and he goes, "Mmm, I love soul food." <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Um, yeah, those are probably my favorite deaths. Or the death in um, Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell, where a camper gets cut in half, and you <laughs> see your body like, oh, flopping around. Nothing like a good cut in half death. Yeah, those are the best. So, we have letters this week. Oh my god. Yeah, and the letter goes, Hi fellows, I'm listening to your fourth episode now because I put it off for like literally forever because, uh, fuck Jean-Luc Godard, am I right? Anyway, I couldn't help but notice this bit at the end where Will Sloan is banging on about this concept of Godard's... Banging on, baby! ...that cinema failure to capture the Holocaust contaminates its form or something. The point doesn't make a lot of sense. Not Will's, I mean Godard's, the twat. I agree. Anyway, I had to question this because if you listen to Loose Cannon's episode 19, The Block House... Oh, nice. It's a great podcast. I recommend it. This fine gentleman, Matthew Kumar, one of those hunky hosts, talk about Night Will Fall, the documentary on the 1945 British government documenting German concentration camps factual survey that uh, was worked on uh, by cinema types like Sidney Bernstein and Alfred Hitchcock. Now... This film was famously suppressed, well, not so famously, that's how suppression works, by the government (laughs) of the time, but when it comes down to it, combat cameraman filmed the Holocaust and footage was used as early as Billy Wilder's Death Mills. Yes, that Billy Wilder, in 1945. My question to the important cinema club hosts is, can you rationalize Godard's statement? Because honestly, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about when you actually uh, know the history of cinema and the Holocaust. Lots of love, your pal, Matthew. <laughs> oh, hello, Matthew. Well, um, I think I can I can uh, address this. I don't want to argue for Jean-Luc Godard. If, if, Jean-Luc, if you want to write in, uh, f- feel free. So I, I know that there are films like uh, The Death Mills Camp uh, that Billy Wilder made, and I think Alfred Hitchcock made one. I think there are a lot of films, and Matthew, uh, contradict me if I'm getting this wrong, but I think there are a lot of films that show the aftermath of the Holocaust. They show the bodies and they show the remains of the camp. 
I think Godard's point was, and I think it's a ridiculous point. Godard thought that cinema should actually capture literally what happened in the gas chamber. It should have essentially captured the, the snuff images to have had some kind of record of it, a record of people dying in the gas chambers. And the fact that cinema was not there to bear witness to the Holocaust means that somehow it has failed because if, you know, if cinema is the art form of the 20th century and this is the greatest um, tragedy of the 20th century, cinema should have been there to capture it and bear witness to it. Uh, I think that Godard is full of shit and talking out of his own ass. I think so too. Yes. (laughs) Now, now Matthew, I don't know, you may be right. Maybe that footage does exist. Um, I I know that we've all seen images of the bodies and stuff. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You do realize this is Matthew Kumar, right? Who wrote this letter? <laughs> well, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be nice to him. I'm not going to start making a lot of jokes about Matthew Kumar talking about the, the Holocaust. <laughs> We've really gone for, to a very serious topic now, haven't yeah. we? I mean, here's the thing about John Le Godard, right? Is that he is considered a very suave, intellectual figure. Always has been since the beginning of time. His new movie, which we talk about in our episode, what, what is it called? The 3D one. Oh, fil- Goodbye uh, to Language. Yeah, Goodbye to Language, yeah. Is a piece of shit that's literally laughing at its audience. I'm, I don't know if I'm quite quite with you on that. I think, I think well, I, I, I'm not like one of the super fans of no, Goodbye to Language. No, I, but I appreciate It's got a Godard. lot of interesting stuff in it. I appreciate Godard, and I like watching his movies, mostly looking for that nugget that really gets people's motors revving. Sometimes I find it. Like, I love Breathless. I love that non-musical musical that he made. Oh, yeah. I like uh, uh, A Woman is a Woman. I really like. Mm. But other ones, when he got into his later periods, it's kind of feels like Godard struggling to be Godard. Well, I, I honestly, I don't think there's a worthless Jean-Luc Godard movie. There are ones that are, <laughs> there are ones that are unwatchable. Yes. But, but I mean, he's always doing something interesting with the form. Uh, he's always doing like some crazy experiment. So like, uh, I guess uh, if you're going to give him that, like, so even like the, the dregs of the Ziga Vertov period, <laughs> it's the like, death of the audience. Like he's doing something. Um, so the movies are always kind of interesting to think about. Uh, and you know, even the 3d one, like he's doing some insane things with 3d in that movie that if, if you're interested in film, you can't not be interested in what he's up to. I mean, and the other thing that we kind of talked about, we, we didn't really talk about, is that what Godard's statement is making there about documenting the Holocaust is something that he never did, really. Like, he never really documented real life. Right. What was happening or whatever, like, because he was always above that. I think it's just a kind of unfair, and I don't know, maybe I'm misrepresenting what Godard said because it's so absurd. But, yeah. But I think it's an unfair burden to place on cinema. Mm-hmm. I think it's a a misinterpretation of what cinema is. I think it places far too much importance on cinema. All right. So to continue, what are we doing next week on the important cinema podcast? Well, the most important podcast about cinema in the world. Back to another highbrow topic. <laughs> we, we will definitely not be addressing the Holocaust next week when we discuss uh, one-shot horror directors. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Carnival of Souls and... Last House of the Dead End Street by Roger Watkins. Last House on Dead End Street. You you probably you may very well know what Carnival of Souls is. It was made by this uh, guy. I forget his name, but he made a lot of industrial educational films. And this was his one shot at a feature length film. And it's kind of gone down in history as this kind of you know beautiful, weird, moody horror film made on a shoestring. Uh, Last House on Dead End Street. Is, I mean, technically not a one shot director. I guess. Well, technically not. It's his only. I, I guess you'd call it mainstream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really stretching the it, definition. It's a very kind of gross, transgressive horror movie that has a certain, you know, uh, 
gruesome power to it. But the director later went on to direct, you know, four or five hardcore pornographic films, uh, Corruption, her name was Lisa, a couple of others. And they're all very kind of downbeat and unsexy uh, and just kind of unpleasant viewing experiences. But So we're going to be talking about those two. It's going to be a barrel of laughs. And I know if we think of another one-shot director, I can't. No, nah, I can't but. think of really one. So uh, until then, go on iTunes, Important Cinema Club podcast, rate us, write us a review. Just like, yeah, here's not? a spooky review. Five stars from a go. None of those one-star reviews, too. <laughs> and send us an email at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. We will read it on the air. We read Matthew Kumar's letter. so we'll <laughs> And I do yours. a podcast with him every week. Yeah. Until then, my name is Justin LeClue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, you and I have spent pretty much the whole day together because... Uh, hand in hand, we woke up in bed, yeah. pulled those blankets off, and we're like, I, I, I made beautiful you, I day. made you breakfast. Yeah. Uh, no, that's not true. That's just a little bit of gay panic humor for our, <laughs> yep. for our listeners. Very, very, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry shit. <laughs> I'm really excited. I am really um, want to direct I now pronounce Chuck and Larry too. <laughs> the one thing standing in the way is uh, Mr. Dennis Dugan. <laughs> no! I think we're going to have to take him out. No, we we went to Horrorama mm-hmm. uh, here in Toronto. So all you... the stars came out to shine: David Dakota, William Lustig, Diane Thorne, Jeff Lieberman, all all the stars. And we don't say this in jest that me and Will actually enjoy these people's work and an opportunity to listen to these people talk. Oh, I, lo- I love these people. And the thing about Horrorama is it's not that big a festival, but when you go to the Q and A's, you can ask a question if you want, and you don't feel like you're taking up their time too much, yeah. or that there's like a thousand people listening to this question be asked. You sat there talking to David Dakota, who, if you don't know him, and first of all, shame on you if you don't know him. Yeah. If you don't know him, he directed such classics as Sorority Babes at the Slime Bowl-O-Rama yeah. and uh, A Talking Cat. That's the most famous, which you got a copy of that signed by him. Yes, I to did. To his disgust. Yeah. He lo- I, I, I came up with my Talking Cat DVD and he like rolled his eyes and it's like, I don't know what it is about that movie. Yeah, I don't know. But me and Will just kind of stood there while we talked to him for like 50 minutes and he was just a wealth of knowledge ah, and interesting stories. I love the guy. I mean, he told the story that he and Eric Roberts are not really that good friends. Well, it's like, it's he said that Eric Roberts, I mean, as you all know, Eric Roberts has something like 150 movies in development on IMDb. 25, which he starred in for David Dakota himself. Yeah, he just like, call him up, you know, if you have money, if you have any money, <laughs> Eric Roberts will show up on your set for a day and uh, according to David Dakota, again, they've made like 25 movies together. Uh, Eric Roberts still doesn't know who he is or he'll show up to the set. And now after 25 movies, he vaguely recognizes him. So be like, oh, it's the boss. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now put up the cue cards around the set. Yeah. Like a Brando-esque figure. Uh, a talking cat. Uh, if you know the film, you'll know that it's hilarious because among other things, Eric Roberts does the voice of the talking cat. Eric Roberts, the children's favorite. <laughs> And it sounds like he was recorded like in a tape recorder in a tin can across the room. Apparently, 
Dakota just called up Eric Roberts and said, hey, do you want to be the voice of a talking cat in my movie? He said, yeah, sure, come over. Bring bring me some money. We can do it in 10 minutes. And it took 15 minutes. David Dakota forgot his microphone, so he used the mic on the camera, which he held up to Eric Roberts' face. <laughs> yeah, and you watch the movie, and it definitely it, it sounds feels like, like that. It. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about uh, being able to talk to David Dakota at a festival like that is we literally had like 50 minutes of just listening to him talk, yeah. and it was great. Well, if you go to somewhere like Fan Expo, you're not going to be talking to any of those celebrities or slightly famous people. I mean, I stopped going to Fan Expo years ago because it's too expensive. I went uh, this year for, well, because Adam West and Burt Ward were there. Mm. It was the first time I'd been to Fan Expo in many years. Uh, But I love Adam West uh, and to a lesser extent Burt Ward. Uh, And it would probably be the last chance to see them. But I watched their Q&A and then I sort of walked around the convention floor. It's like, I hate this, you know? (laughs) The thing about going to conventions is why do you want to go, right? Like when I was a kid, it was all about seeing these famous people and maybe getting their autograph. Yeah. Which brings you feeling closer to them, I guess. But it's not. It's It's not. It's like you you pay like $25 at least for an interaction with a person, mm-hmm. which first of all is like weird. It's yeah. like, it's so, it, you know, it's not a real interaction if there's like a transaction involved. Uh, it's like, you know, well, I don't want to stigmatize prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you paid $25 to get a photo today. Well, I did. Uh, and I debated with myself because I really looked down on, you know, paying money for photos with people. But it'll. <laughs> Listen, guys, Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS was at Horrorama, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And you told her a slight story about seeing her movie. I, I said, yeah, we watched it in my college dorm, and it made people cry. And she got so excited, she went to go get her whip to take a <laughs> photo with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing about these uh, these kind of conventions, is that it feels much... Like, when it feels a little bit smaller, you have more contact with the people that are probably more interesting than Adam West or mm. uh, William Shatner, who's going to give you the same answers over and over and over again. Well, at Fan Expo this year, they had this massive line where you and your family could go, like, go take a picture with William Shatner and then get herded out and have the picture instantly printed and framed. The picture is $100. The framing is another 50 to $100. <laughs> that is insane. For this kind of, like, department store quality image of you with William Shatner for an encounter that didn't even really happen. <laughs> you just went up next to him. You didn't even speak to him. You might have said hi. And then you can frame this non-encounter and put it in your living room. Like, what the hell's the point? <laughs> so you're trying to say that there's no joy in going to conventions and meeting celebrities. I mean, I don't know. I like to go to- if, if some people like it, I mean, I had fun today talking to David Dakota. Yeah, that was great fun. Yeah. And I mean, I love going to conventions and seeing little independent distributors or people that you would not be able to buy their wares in any other situation selling their stuff. Yeah, like we bought some stuff from Vinegar Syndrome today. Yeah. My I, favorite DVD distributor. Is it? Is, are well, they I don't favorite? know. I, Criterion is pretty good. <laughs> Criterion, Vinegar Syndrome, yeah. right under it. Yeah. That's fun. Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... My wife! Sorry, uh, Will Sloan. <laughs> I can't go on. I gotta restart. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna put that at the end, though. Okay. <laughs>